As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman, who, believe it or not, is still on the road, has not returned home even from that last podcast you heard last week. Bruce, my first question would be, at any point in your journeys, have you had to take a United flight? <laughs> no, I have not. I thought about that when I got on American Airlines. Is it me, Stu, or do you think that, yes, that was United, but it wouldn't shock me if it was any one of the other airline, major airlines? I No, and I think that you know I'm now seeing stories where other, you know, other people are emailing writers with their United horror stories, and I've read them, and I've think, yeah, I'm not sure that's unique to United. Uh, what is unique to United is how poorly they handled the PR of the first 48 hours, and how unbelievably, uh, how much that has probably set back that company. I thought in the when it first came out, the video came out as awful as it was. I thought, well, there's one of these PR crises for an airline every couple of weeks and then everybody moves on to the next one but they handled it so poorly that i do think this is becoming uh, something that people are going to uh, associate united with for a long long time i made sure of that by including several references to it in wednesday's mailbag but in all seriousness where are you uh, i am right now i'm in the woodlands texas which is in north of houston didn't you have an uh, awful situation with a rental car there once not in the, not in no, the woodlands. woodlands. Okay. No, no, the woodlands. If I'm not mistaken, is I think where like Chance Mock was from. That's when I first I had heard of it. Um, my awful uh, rental car thing that happened was in Houston. It was a is at a place called Town and Country, and there seems to be a real scam where they uh, they tow they tow cars. It was like a it was it was a bad deal. It was a bad um, deal. Hopefully things are going better. How, by the way, how much was that rental car when you turned it in uh, from the East Coast swing? Uh, $1,400. $1,400? I think I put 1,500 miles on it. Oh, boy. I hope our bosses aren't listening to this. Um, all right. So when we last left you – and by the way, I just want to add that we will be answering your emails over the second half of this podcast. But we do want to get some more reports from around the country. I've got one to contribute at some point. But anyway, when we last left off, you had been at West Virginia. Next up was Penn State. 
Yes. Yeah, so I went to West Virginia scrimmage on Sunday night. Uh, saw Will Greer. It was the first time I'd seen him play since his Florida days. The offense there really struggled. Um, one, just one other West Virginia note. You know, they only have three starters back on defense, and Tony Gibson, the defense coordinator, has done a really good job there. Uh, it wouldn't shock me if they were actually as good, if not better, on defense, even with all those new people to replace. The one guy he has back who he raves about is David Long, who is a freshman linebacker there. He's a short linebacker, but exceptionally instinctive. And he might be as good a defensive player as Tony Gibson said he's ever been around. And that's saying something because, you know, Carl Joseph was a, was a high draft pick. Uh, we know how great he was a guy who recruited Scooby, Wright. We know how you and I both feel about Scooby. I know uh, how you feel about Scooby. Yes, I know. I know. One of my kids is lucky. They didn't get, they didn't get that Nick, that name. Uh, so anyway, that's, that's high praise. And then from there I drove from Morgantown to state college where I spent all of Monday with the Nittany Lions, and that was a very interesting and full day. I met James Franklin at 6.15 to sit down with him, and then was there till I guess, about 7.30, 8 o'clock at night, uh, whether it was through meetings and practice. Um, and got to stem with both coordinators and the two stars of the team, Trace McSorley and, and Saquon Barkley. And, you know, it was like a, it was a good day. I, I'll tell you what, just from watching Penn State on the field, I'm not as surprised now after seeing the, some of the athletes they have, especially skill talent-wise, that they had the, as good a year as they did offensively. Um, in that system, and I think Joe Moorhead does a, really, has, does a really good job with what he runs, they could be as good as anybody offensively. I, I really believe that because the quarterback is good and smart and, and fits the system well, and Saquon Barkley's probably the best running back in the country, but it's not Darius Geis, it's him. And they have a ton of really like imposing, pretty athletic receivers. And I think they're going to be a problem for a lot of people this year. Didn't I see recently an article where as high as the NFL people are on these, this year's running backs, they're even higher on Saquon Barkley. Yeah. Um, I believe that's true. You know, when I was at the combine, people there talked about him as they expect him to be a top five pick. And he's pretty much got everything. Um, you know, the, the one thing I'll say is he is way bigger than I thought in person because he does not look like he's 230 pounds. And the reason why and you ask people there and he'll even say, you know, he's got a pretty good sized upper body, but it's like, you know, he's just, he's just a, a big lower body, you know, you know, just has like a, uh, a presence about him. Very humble kid. But also remember, this is a guy that's the fastest guy in the program. Was timed, I think, at the four-three-three. Uh, he's a good blocker. He's pretty much everything. He's obviously a home run hitter, but he's a really uh, seemed to be very grounded, humble kid, and was you know I was very impressed with him, and I could see why. You know, there's one of those things where what's not to like about this kid? Well, I can't wait to see them take the field this fall because that offense by the end of last season was so exciting, and now with the guys coming back and like you, you, you seem to believe from firsthand just how skilled they are in offense, you know, they're gonna be a very fun team to watch. It is amazing to me how quickly, basically in a year's time, Penn State went from this, you know, extended period where their offensive line was decimated by the 
sanctions and, and they just didn't have the bodies and they couldn't block. And Christian Hackenberg, you know, disappointed everybody. And a year later, we're talking about them as one of the best offenses in the country. To kind of bring this back full circle to last season and the Audible and the, and the Facebook Live show we did, I feel like, you know, in the endless debates we had during the season toward the end about Ohio State and Penn State, you would bring up a couple times thinking you said something like, do you think the reason people are doubting Penn State is because they don't think they're just they just don't think they're as talented as Ohio State? Uh, you now saw them both in person recently. How do they how do those two stack up from a pure personnel standpoint? You know, offensively, I think Penn State stacks up quite well. You know, I don't know if they have enough as many big athletic bodies up front as Ohio State does. But, you know, when you see it, it you know, if you're picking a running back, Mike Weber's a good running back. Saquon Barkley is a great one. Receivers, well, and, and Penn State definitely doesn't have the edge at receiver. Yeah, Penn State's got a – I mean – you know, they, the thing that jumps out at, at you is when you see it, they have like three or four guys who are legit 6'4", 225-pound outside guys. And that's on top of Mike Gesicki, who's 6'6", 255, and might be as athletic a big tight end as there is in college football. So, and, and you know what? I mean, the way Trace, Trace McSorley, I want to think this through before I say it. Trace McSorley had a better year last year than JT Barrett did. And it was oh, his first definitely. year as a starter. You know, yeah, I it, think took were, till, it took probably till too late for people to realize that. I think I feel like JT Barrett won, might have won Big Ten Offensive Player of the Year or close to it. But no, Trace McSorley had a better year. It just took till probably the Big Ten Championship game for people to see just how good he'd become. I actually was rewatching the end of the Rose Bowl recently. It's unfortunate that you know, I, you know, you forget it's months since the game. You you see it. You oh yeah, now I remember the details of how this ended. It's unfortunate that his interception, the second interception, ended up basically costing them the game because he did throw a whole bunch of touchdowns in that game. Yeah, I remember watching, like, you know, at the end of the game, you're allowed down, you know, last few minutes down on the field. And I was standing not far from, you know, the Penn State staff. And I just remember thinking the last four or five plays, one of these plays, Trace McSorley is going to pull it and he's going to run for like 19 yards and ice the game. And he never did. And I, you know, I was tempted to ask, you know, Moorhead how close that was to happening or whatever. But, uh, you know, look, uh, one thing that just as an aside, uh, the defensive coordinator, Brent Pry, he was telling me, and I'm trying to be respectful as I say it, but it was like until they, they knew that Sam Darnold was talented from film they, but they, he said they really didn't have a, a great idea of just how talented until you physically are in the field on the field and seeing how tough he is to corral, uh, and the plays he makes. And I think it was kind of, kind of an eye opener. And, you know, when we were talking, I was like, you know, obviously I covered the PAC 12 and I'm out there and did some games. You talk to people in the league, but I think until that, you know, I think it was, like I said, I think it was a real eye-opener just how talented he is as a quarterback. And I think that that obviously came back to Burnham you know, quite a bit. I think that's true a lot of times. it's. Uh, I remember I didn't fully appreciate – by this point, Johnny Manziel, he had already won the Heisman the year before. He was the you know one of the most acclaimed players in college football. But I didn't truly get how ridiculous he was as a runner 
until seeing him in person uh, at that A&M Alabama game in College Station the next year. And the way he would elude pass rushers was like like nobody I had seen before. He was unique in that area. And I just clarified here, I looked it up. Saquon Barkley won uh, Big Ten Offensive Player of the Year, and JT Barrett won Quarterback of the Year. So over... Um, over so early so i think that's one of those ones people like to have a do-over so okay so penn state defense any anything you got on the penn state defense for us um you know i think they have they're a little more athletic in the secondary than i thought they would be i still don't look at them and see they don't have the kind of defensive front right now or i don't even think it's really that close to what what Ohio State has. Now, Ohio State is really strong with, you know, especially at defensive end where I think Penn State is 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 getting better, but they're not there yet. I mean, they're just to me that there is a sizable difference there between what Ohio State has, especially Ohio State's depth uh, at all three levels. So could be a lot of 49-35 or 49-42 games for the Alliance next one, year. One last thing, and I wrote about this a little bit, was – at the end of practice, you know, they, they had that day, uh, Penn State was hosting its international students. They had 100 international students. They let attend practice and they, you know, one of their staffers kind of talked to them about just kind of what they do at practice and everything. And, and some of the some of the other students really seemed to they had a pretty good grasp on on American football. They were from all over the world. But anyway, at the end of practice, I see it started with the quarterbacks. They walked over to the to the like the roped off area and one by one, almost like a like the end of a hockey playoff series. They shook each hand and you know made small talk with with every single person there. And it went on for the next 20 minutes with, you know, whenever a position group would come off to, right to the end where there was like three receivers who were like just doing extra work where the last one's on. And by that time. The crowd had dwindled quite a bit, but I was like, I had never seen that before. It was a really cool gesture. At the end, also, James Franklin stayed there, and he, I mean, he really chatted up anybody who was there. You know, it was almost like he was running for office, and I said, how long have you been doing that? He goes, oh, we did it at Vanderbilt. They started, uh, a couple of his guys who he ended up bringing with him to Penn State had started the international student uh, deal. You know, he said it was, they thought it was a, a right thing to do to kind of help grow their fan support and show them they appreciate them. And I'm surprised more people wouldn't adopt what they're doing because it is a very nice touch. Um, now again, it's not like practices are open and they're doing it for 500 people. They happen to have groups at practice and the day I was there, they had the international students, but, uh, it was a very cool thing, especially for a program that obviously in the last decade is, has seen more than a share of, of negativity. I'm all, I'm all for that. You know, uh, not specific to international students, but Ohio State always has a practice. I think one practice in the spring and one in the fall or preseason that's open to the students, students only, in fact. So um, it's college football. They're in college. That's well, it wasn't great. just that, though. It was just the interaction with them that I that I noticed. You know, even like at the end, Sa- Saquon Barkley's signing autographs and posing for pictures with each of these each of these kids, too. You know, and I don't think, you know, he just did it. It wasn't like they were like, hey, we're going to have an autograph session for our best player. It just, right. you know, it's just kind of how it played out. Very cool. So then what? Uh, that was Monday night. Then I drove in the middle of nowhere to somewhere in New Jersey 
And the next day I was at Fordham and you're not going to give us a Fordham spring practice report, are you? No, I'm not. I'm not. But I, uh, I do think you will hear uh, Andrew Briner's the head coach. I think you, he's a young guy and he looks even younger than he is. And I think at some point in the not too distant future, FBS football fans will know a lot more about him. Well, with the success that their former head coach, Joe Moorhead, has had at Penn State, suddenly I would think people are going to be looking uh, more closely at Fordham. That's very right, Stu. I think you're on to something. And then, so that was yesterday and. Uh, this morning I flew to Houston, ditched my rent-a-car, and spent a little of the afternoon with Kyle Allen, the former A&M quarterback, who's, who's now will be the starter at Houston, and Major Appway, the new head coach. And that was a good visit because I've known Major for almost 20 years. I mean, I did a feature on him for the magazine back when he was the young quarterback at Texas. And, um, you know, he's obviously – been through a lot since that point and, and everything like that. And so it was, it was a, it was a good visit and I'm going to move on and try to hit, I, hopefully I can hit three more Texas schools in the next three days. Is there anybody else like that, that, that you covered as both a player and a, and a head coach now? You know, I don't want to say like, I wrote about Pat Fitzgerald when ESPN.com, yeah. it wasn't even ESPN.com yet, but you know, maybe I had interviewed him on a conference call, but like when, you know, when you do a magazine feature, you actually have a lot of FaceTime and there's more involved to it. So, you know, like I, like I said, same deal. I covered Cliff Kingsbury a little bit, but not like, I don't remember writing a feature about anybody who's now a coach. And I, I remember that major story it was funny. Cause he actually, you know, he goes, I remember being those days. He was like, you know, you'd come in and then Austin Murphy would come in. I was like, it was like an Ivan Maisel. And, you know, so it was just kind of, you know, it's funny to hear from the other side of it. He's seen both sides of it now as a player when he was like, you know, you don't even know really what you're saying or what you're, what you, you're supposed to say or how you're supposed to handle it. Do you remember that time fondly, all those writers coming in and, uh, and, and taking up his time interviewing him, or that was a nuisance? I think there's probably a little bit of, of both. I think he was just trying to, you know, sort everything out that was going on at that point. And one thing that's interesting to me about him, and I remember this from the last time I spent some time with him, which was right when they first got to Houston and, you know, it was Tom Herman's staff and he was talking about, he said it kind of like as an, uh, just, you know, it was just a passing comment about how in his home, they really have no really signs of football and certainly none of like his, you know, awards or anything or jerseys or any stuff like that. And so I'd ask him about it again. He's like, yeah, no, my my dad, I thought he said his dad was like 47 when he was like a little kid and he's running past patterns for him and doing all this stuff. He's like, no, they have everything in their home, but that's kind of how it is. And he's kind of living in the moment. He just doesn't want people to think, oh, I was that guy who, you know, was a starting quarterback at Texas. I think it's, you know, I mean, it's kind of noble how he said it, but it's just a little different than what I would expect. So... While you were traversing the country and racking up $1,400 in rental car charges, I uh, on Saturday morning I got in my car and drove 15 minutes to Stanford for their open scrimmage. And uh, I would say kind of they've picked up – so they – just a quick refresher. They did end up winning 10 games last year, but it didn't feel like it because of that Friday night uh, butt-kicking by Washington. Game, Washington. They could not – 
protect the passer. Right, could not protect the passer. McCaffrey got hurt either in that game or the Washington State game where they also got their butt kicked. So people just forgot about them. And they had a nice bowl win over UNC, over uh, the now potential number one pick in Trubisky. And I guess Solomon Thomas is projected to not go not far behind. But um, So Stanford is going to be really good on defense. Uh, no question about it, especially... The uh, linebackers and secondary, very deep at linebacker. Quentin Meeks, really good cornerback. But I didn't, and now uh, Bryce Love wasn't in the scrimmage. So you're looking at the next couple running backs after that. But I didn't see, I I, I don't know where the big plays are going to come from on offense other than Bryce Love, who's an established guy. And then you got the added factor that everybody's counting on Keller Chris to come back from his ACL injury. David Shaw said afterward, they are expecting him back for the start of preseason practice. And they need him to because I don't get the sense there's much. There's still not much faith in Ryan Burns. And no, I, I almost feel like that ship sailed there. Well, and that's not a good sign because there's still definitely separation to the untrained eye, at least, between him and K.J. Costello, who was a very highly touted freshman last year, redshirt freshman now who I think maybe if you follow recruiting, you'd be like, oh, well, he'll end up beating them both out. Well, right now he's running second string, and the first string guy's not uh, available. So they got a lot riding on Keller Chris coming back and and picking up where he left off. He wasn't, like, dominant by any means last year. And then the other factor is they just don't have big guys that can make big plays on the outside at receiver. Trent well, Irwin Trent, is a Trent, good— Trent Irwin's a good college receiver, though. He's the guy, right? And then— yeah. I will say in that scrimmage I watched, the other kind of um, established guy, J.J. Arcega-Whiteside, he caught the winning touchdown last mm-hmm. year against uh, UCLA, got hurt early in the in the uh, scrimmage and went out, nothing major. So they, they don't even have that many re- receivers on the roster, period. They are going to be counting on the guys in that incoming class. But I do think they're going to be really good. Um, I think they're going to play great defense. They're going to run the ball, and they just need to get a little bit better not a little bit, considerably better passing game than they had last year. I'm curious to see which receivers emerge. Uh, give me a prediction for this for the Stanford Cardinal. Would they be a top? Do they have a chance? What percent chance would you put on them making the playoff? More than 10%? I would like to hold off. I know you love to play that game, but next week I'm going to see Washington in person. I'd really like to. Uh, then I will have seen USC, Washington, and Stanford. I'd like to make any predictions at that point. Um, but I was going to ask you back when you were singing the praises of West Virginia, which you did on the last podcast as well, who, who is your right now, if you had to pick somebody to win the big 12, West Virginia, Oklahoma, or a team who I know we're both high on Oklahoma state. You know, I love Oklahoma state's offense and I don't have a great feel on what they have defensively. I know some of the personnel they lost. You know, because I did two of their games late in the year, because of the defense gives and gives me pause. I'm not, you know, I think they may have the the best offense in college football this coming season, but I just don't know if they'll be able to ha- to to be a top ten team without it. I'm gonna lean, you know, Baker Mayfield's back. I'm gonna lean on Oklahoma because I think they have better depth and experience O line. Wouldn't shock me though. You know, if West Virginia made a run at the title, uh, at the Big 12 title, because they have four good running backs. The quarterback, I think, is going to be an upgrade in Will Greer. And I think Tony Gibson's a really good defensive coordinator. 
but they have to go to Oklahoma, so I'm going to say Oklahoma. Okay. I haven't decided yet, but I am really excited about Oklahoma State. But you're right. I mean, it's all about the offense and Mason Rudolph and James Washington and, and, and Justice Hill. And, and actually, it's more than just James Washington. It's just a really good receiving core. Well, they get Marcel Aitman back. If fans remember two years ago, you know he was the king of the 50-50 ball for them. He's a big, big physical receiver. Uh, and they have a deep group. Um, you know, I know Jake Trotter from ESPN.com, their Big 12 blogger, had written that they had the best receiving core in the country, and I don't disagree with them. I mean, they I, they might have been the best receiving core without Marcel Aitman coming back and without Tyron Johnson, the LSU transfer, stepping in. So, And, you know, they have a really good quarterback. I think Mason Rudolph is pretty underrated if you don't watch a lot of Big 12. So the parallel there, the reason, you know, the, the thing that comes up is – could this be like the 2011 Oklahoma State team where Whedon and Justin Blackman came back? And uh, I say Joseph Randall was, if he wasn't the starting running back, he was a major part of that team. And then the defense was just good enough. I don't think it was ranked particularly highly, but I remember they, they, they shut down Robert Griffin III the year he won the Heisman. Anyway, that team ended up number two in the country. So... I don't know if we're ready to go there quite yet, but uh, that's why that's kind of the, the parallels and the reasons why expectations are are pretty high in Stillwater right now. Well, I'm glad we're talking talking some Big Twelve. Absolutely. Look, we both agree that as bad as the Big Twelve was last year, they should be a lot better this year because it's just quarterbacks are coming back, and you know, right. The and opposite of the ACC, where to grow. it's pretty amazing the number of quality quarterbacks that conference lost in the span of a year. Mm-hmm. Except, for, of course, for Lamar Jackson. Yes, and Florida State's quarterback is back. Yeah, he's very right. good, yeah. And he's considered the second-best quarterback, probably. Um, yeah, I, you know what? I don't know, I'm, I'm not going to jump on the table for Eric Dungy. But, <laughs> yeah, the, but I, he he's be. pretty good. He could be there. All right, it's been a while since we've answered some emails. What do you say we go to the mailbag? Okay, let's hear from Rob Stone. It's the mailbag from a computer, so not literally a bag, but just mail. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Why don't you start us off? Okay, Stu. Our first question is for John Banal from Ridgeland, Mississippi. Is it reasonable for fans of D1 schools to expect to compete for national titles in both football and men's basketball? I can only think of two re- examples in recent memory where a team is competitive in both, that being Florida in the mid-2000s and Wisconsin now. Other than those two, most schools are either competitive in one but average to awful in the other. Is it because schools consciously choose one over the other? Or is it because it's just plain hard to be competitive Competitive at one sport, let alone two. Um, one example that came to my mind when I read this was up till last year, Michigan State has been very good in both sports. Yeah, I mean, I think he forgot a couple recent teams. Michigan State two years ago had a, a playoff a team, football team reached the playoff, and the basketball team was the number two, was a number two seed, and they lost to uh, Middle Tennessee. But, you know, as a team a lot of people thought could, could make the Final Four. And then Oklahoma... I think that same year, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Playoff in football, Final Four in basketball. 
Now, is there a long list of schools that are in this position? No. Uh, Michigan, I think, is getting to the point where they might be able to pull that off. They have very good programs in both. Um, because of what he said, it's really hard to to contend for national titles in either sport. There are a whole lot of schools out there that would love to contend for a national title in one of the two sports, much less both. Um, but I also think, in general, it's hard to find. There's not a lot of schools where the fan support and and because of that, the financial support is equally strong for both. I mean, there's almost none where it's equally strong for both, and certainly not where. Um, like Florida, you know, they when they had that run in the mid two thousands, nobody was saying, "Oh, but Florida's a basketball school." They had a great basketball coach, and he he had a lot of success. But clearly, it was built more for football. Yeah, I mean, my example that comes to mind when when you think of the opposite side of you know, kind of where John was going with the question, is KU and UK. KU yes. and it, you know, like as an afterthought in football. But obviously, it's a powerhouse in basketball, and Kentucky is, you know, is is everything in college basketball and struggling to be five hundred in football, you know. And and I, you know, I, when I look at that, it's like to me they're the they are the most unique example of that. Whereas you know UCLA is is obviously uh, you know legendary in basketball with John Wooden, but they've still been really good at times in football similar to North Carolina, you know, with the basketball emphasis. An interesting test case for this for this coming year might be Alabama, who uh, Avery Johnson's the basketball coach now. He's generated a lot of enthusiasm for that program, and they have um, one of the absolute best recruits in the country coming in in basketball and a pretty good class at that. So there's, there's, there's people who think they could, you know, obviously Kentucky will be the team to beat in the SEC every year in basketball now. But they did just lose, I think, their top eight players. So uh, there's there's a lot of hype for Alabama basketball next year. And obviously football is already there. So uh, that would be an interesting test case to see if they could pull that off. I don't think they're going to contend for the national title. But could they get the basketball program rolling, uh, which hasn't been the case for them for several decades? This question I'm going to ask to you. It's from Sean Tholstrup, Perlin, Texas. If the 10th assistant – well, let's give a little context here – um, maybe by the time you've listened to this, I'm not sure, but this Friday, uh, NCAA council will vote on a pretty com- comprehensive recruiting reform package for football. This is the one that has the early signing date most notably, but there's a lot of other things as well. And this is part of it. If the 10th assistant coach rule gets passed, will there not be absolute chaos with 64 power five teams looking to hire new assistants suddenly this cycle? I realize big cycle, big schools will likely go to their quality control staff, but is this something the group of five and smaller schools are actively worried about? Yeah, I think they are. Uh, I was at a school a couple of days ago and was talking to a guy who was well-regarded within the program. Certainly is a smart guy who I think is banking that he will be the 10th, the 10th coach. And one of his colleagues who's older and more established had pointed out, the concerns from from a lot of places is that kind of could muck up the timing for a lot of programs where if you have if you're uh, you know doing one of those jobs at if you're doing any job quite honestly at a uh, at a non power five and let's say all of a sudden then uh, Texas or Ohio State or Notre Dame has another vacancy 
you know, that could screw up somebody's recruiting class or it could screw up somebody's, you know, game preparation for the upcoming season. And, and so, I think it goes into effect. If it gets passed, it goes into effect August 1st. Well, that was the issue is when would these things kind of, you know, what was the, what was the language going to be on some of these and how are they going to go in, not just go into effect, but how are people going to handle it? Because that was something that I, they thought was going to concern the smaller schools, the mid majors. I'm, uh, I'm curious how this is all going to go down because it's asking a lot of schools to vote for all of these things at once. So it's not like they're just voting yeah. on the early signing date or just voting on a 10th assistant coach. Either you pass all or none of this package that also includes that rule we talked about when uh, in reference to Harbaugh a couple months ago. Where yeah, well, the, that rule is referenced to a lot of people. I mean, Well, that's that, how it came up on our podcast. But yeah, yes, I, I mean, it's gotten plenty more attention with the uh, you can't hire a, a high school coach of a, somebody you're recruiting within two years before or two years after the player signs. A lot of uproar over that because a feeling of like, well, then how is a high school coach ever going to make it up to college? Which I've been thinking about. And on the one hand, I'm sympathetic toward that. You know, the Alabama papers have pointed to Jeremy Pruitt. He got his start as a as a support staffer well, so in Alabama. Hugh, so did Hugh Freeze. So did lots of guys did. But there have also been a lot of guys who they who high school coaches who the um, college coaches just hired as a position coach. Um, you know, Gus Malzahn was an extreme example where he got hired as a OC at an SEC school. Yeah. yeah. But it's really not that rare for them to hire a high school coach to be an assistant coach. So I, I don't necessarily buy that. That'll no, be, the end. Of, that'll be, there, some there'll be no more high school coaches. I mean, you know, Auburn's offense coordinator now was an analyst, you know, a few years ago at, uh, at Auburn. And then he went to Arizona state and, I guess it comes down to, you know, if you're looking at it from a career development standpoint, no question. This has opened up a lot of opportunities. This, like, sprawling arms race of who can add more support staffers has definitely created a lot more opportunities for high school coaches to join college staffs. On the other hand, is that is that the best use of people's money to just kind of, like, build these fortresses full of guys in cubicles who 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 you who they add because they can right they're like well this guy knows the area he's a great high school coach he knows the area we're just gonna find a spot for him well look at it this way you know it's more jobs and i and i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing and you know what i i, I hate to say this but if you're at the lower end of of fbs football and you don't have the wherewithal financially to do some of those things you know, that's too bad. <laughs> I mean, just because a lot of other, you know, there's a lot of other things in recruiting, you know, st- you know, if you're going for a Stanford education, you know, there's a, very few schools can even come close to competing with that. doesn't mean that they should hold back on it. I wonder if, to answer his question, though, I wonder if it's going to create a bit of a limbo. If this does go into effect August 1st, you know, like we just said, a school like Auburn, Alabama, any, any, really any Power Five school at this point is going to have guys on their staff they could easily promote. They probably already know who it's going to be. But there could be other schools that, at least for that 2017 season, don't have a 10th assistant coach. They're just not in position to do that. And then maybe they hire somebody after the season. But it's there's no great date to start it on, but August 1st does kind of make sense because it's, 
theoretically, I mean, it's definitely the beginning of the season in terms of preseason practice. And it's theoretically when the recruiting calendar for that year kicks off. Though, obviously, they've been recruiting these kids since a lot further back than August 1st. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on. Stu, this question is from Brian and Madison. Bruce and Stewart, of all the assistant coaching changes this offseason, little has been discussed about Wisconsin hiring Jim Leonard as their new defensive coordinator. With only one year of coaching experience, what are your thoughts on Paul Chris's decision to have Leonard take over what was one of the top defenses in the country last season? So when this first got announced, I was my reaction was, oh, wait, I couldn't have told you he wasn't still in the NFL. Like, wait, Jim Leonard's in coaching now? Um do you find that like it's it's all starting to blur together? Like some of these guys, I swear they played college more recently than they did. Uh, so I looked it up. Sure enough, he hasn't been in college in like ten years or, or more. Mm-hmm. He's thirty four. Um, you remember Luke Jackson, the Oregon basketball player? Oh yeah, definitely. He was uh, Luke Ridenour. So I actually saw saw Oregon play a couple times with that team. Yeah, well, so he was reportedly going to get a. Um, he does have like a small school head coaching job. He's going to get a better head coaching job. Then I guess they gave it to somebody else. And I was like, didn't he just, I thought to myself, didn't he just play on the um, team a few years ago that, that went to the Elite Eight and I looked it up? No, he last played there in 2005. So it's all starting to run together for me. Didn't we see Brian Morrison? Uh, Brian Morrison. Adam Morrison. Who's Brian Morrison? He's like the North Carolina, like old, or is the ACC old? There was a Brian Morrison who worked in the ACC media ACC, office at yeah. some point. Adam Morrison um, was on was by the Gonzaga bench during the title game. Oh yeah, with the uh, look like he fell asleep at the pool. I know, man. Get some sunblock. He, he it was like painful just to look at the look at those pictures of him. So Jim Leonard, who you may should remember as All American safety at Wisconsin, he went from walk on to All American, retired from the NFL according to Wikipedia in 2014. He was DB coach at Wisconsin last year. Now he's the, uh, with Justin Wilcox leaving for Cal, he's the DC. Uh, it's a little concerning, to be honest. Like, I know he's revered there and should be, and I'm sure the players love playing for him. But when you're talking about a program that over the last few years has had a heck of a run of defensive coordinators, when you're talking about Dave Aranda, and Wilcox, who I know the USC fans don't love, but had been a great DC every other place and had a great year last year. Those are experienced guys with a great track record of success. Now you're handing it over to a guy who's been a college coach for one year. I mean, I don't, I don't want to doubt Paul Christ. He knows what he's doing. But, yeah, it seems a little risky. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of examples of coach of, of guys who've jumped in with that limited experience, much less... You know, obviously he has has experience playing at the highest level, but still, that's the challenge on this thing is just, uh, you know, I guess you, I guess it's a roll of the dice, and we'll see how it plays out. Did um, anybody else come to mind when you, when you looked at this? That's done this? Yeah, I mean. Well, when your guy Major, and nobody remembers this, but when Nick Saban hired him as his first OC at Alabama, I want to say he I hadn't didn't have that many years of coaching experience at that point. No, he was very young. The one thing that's interesting to me is not only is Jim Leonard, you know, jumping in the deep in the end of the pool as a defensive coordinator, but he's also the secondary guy too. Now, obviously that was his specialty, but it's not like the staff has 
you know, they have a special teams guy who specifically does that. So, you know, that's a lot of work on, you know, he's not just, you know, some guys just, hey, they run the defense, the, the defensive coordinator. Maybe they have outside linebackers or something. He's got the entire secondary. I mean, so. the good news is he's not like coming in off the street or from another program. He was there last year. So he clearly knows their system and, and you know, should have the, to, the knowledge and the ability to teach that system. Um, but, you know, the biggest thing to me is just play calling. If you've never done it, even if you've been a college assistant coach for 15 years, this is your first time being a play caller, that's an adjustment. So he just hasn't been in that situation very often. Yeah, I think their linebackers guy had been a, a defensive coordinator someplace else. So at least there's a little bit of experience there. Um, but yeah, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see. Okay. Um, I like this one. Thomas in San Jose. Hi Bruce and Stu. You and other college football journalists often talk about the importance of a school's facilities, but can you explain what specifically schools find so important about them and why there's such an arms race? renovate their facilities so frequently does the size of the locker room really improve a team's performance on game day are recruits making their decisions based on the age of the dumbbells in the weight room i am personally a big believer that they make almost no difference i don't buy that recruits are choosing their school based on which one has the nicer facilities and i certainly don't buy that it's the reason why teams win or lose games because we've seen plenty of teams in the past like the Pete Carroll USC team, they did not have world-class facilities and they were the most dominant program in the country at that point. So that's how I feel. How do you feel? I feel similar. I mean, I think the the two areas I noticed the biggest difference that becomes point of emphasis, uh, and I one, and this is directly from Tom Herman when he got settled in at Houston, which was he the locker room was a big priority to him. And the reason why is because that's where the players spend so much of their time. They're in there every day and you want it to look like it's a first class thing. And I think what that really comes back to is it doesn't need to be the, the most uh, impressive locker room in all of FBS football. But if it looks like it's run down, I think that's a different story to have it upgraded. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree, by the way. I, I don't think you can have decrepit facilities. I'm sure... If somebody showed up for an official visit and the place looked like it hadn't been touched in 15 years, sure, I'm, I'm, I think that would have a negative effect. But these schools go the opposite route, and they go so over the top um, with these facilities. Although I will say I do like the Clemson mini golf course. Well, you know what else they do is it's a lot of the signage and – it, you know, it's it's the imagery since it's like kind of all about what the things they want to stress to their players and create that environment. And just you know, coming back to my Penn State trip, uh, one of their assistant ads, Mike Hazel, who was with Franklin at Vanderbilt. You know, I'm in his office, and there was a uh, an intern, or a, I think it was an intern, came into his office. And they were talking about some tasks that they were working on for the day or for the week. And it was Monday. And one of the things he said is, hey, did you see 60 Minutes last night? And I don't think she did. I didn't. But he said they had a I guess they had a segment on Chobani yogurt. And he said he was talking about like kind of their with yogurt. I don't know what he's the word culture, but with the kind of the culture that they wanted instill in the company and some of the 
you know, it's everything you think of, like the Notre Dame's famous play like a champion today sign. But a lot of the things you see in different locker rooms and different football facilities are the kinds of positive reinforcement that does resonate with these guys. And I think about it all along my trip here. You know, that conversation that they talked about where they would do something like this or some of the motivational sayings right up to when I was at Toledo last week, Jason Candle, the head coach there, had, you know, his team 16 leaders. And they talked about a lot of stuff that kind of echoes some of these mantras and different things that do that are that are things they're trying to instill in them. And, you you know, you can look at it in a lot of different ways, whether it was like. You know, Charlie Strong, you know, the the five rules that, you know, is up in every room or those kinds of things that that teams try to make to the backbone of of their success. Are you including the Tom Herman P chart in that category? Um, yes, it's championship level stuff like that still. Um, well, that no, I, I get obviously you, the messaging is extremely important. That's not what they're spending the money on, though. They're spending the money on we have to have. Whoever has well, the, the, locker the biggest rooms are not cheap still. No, not the locker, the locker room. room. The signage is not a big expense, I wouldn't think. No, the locker but it can, rooms it, you're still talking about stuff that goes into the five figures. I think the re- big expense is, you know, they got to have the biggest weight room. They got whoever has the biggest weight room now, they've got to one up it. Well, I think uh, where it comes back to is indoor facilities. Indoor and it facilities. Comes back, locker rooms are a big deal. Locker rooms are not cheap. You know, so Honestly, a big part of this is they got to spend the money on something. And it's not going to the players. It's going to – so you got to spend it on something. got all this money. Um, you got to spend it on something. Might as well add waterfalls to your football facility. This question is from Travis Trader from St. Louis. I've noticed for a few years that non-conference teams that play an away game at Hawaii get to have a 13th game in their schedule. This year, that team will be BYU, but I have no idea the reasoning behind it. Do you know where this rule came from? I do. It's uh, I don't know exactly when it started, but it was the done. Money deal. It was done to entice teams to take what is an extremely expensive trip to go play Hawaii. Hawaii was going to have trouble getting non-conference teams to come play there, so the. The rule is you get to basically get an extra home game. You get a 13th game. Ostensibly, it's going to be an extra home game to help offset the cost of your trip to Hawaii. That's the reasoning behind it. Yeah, I I do not know exactly when this thing, because I'm guessing it started as the 12th game. Yeah, I can remember. And that was actually pretty problematic. It was the 12th game. uh, Do you know when it seems to have started? 1985. Is that right? I believe so. And how did you figure that out? Uh, I found something from on UPI.com. That is so 1985. <laughs> I know. And it's basically taught. It's a release that said they added a 12th game to its schedule and they were going to host Kansas at Aloha Stadium. Permission to play a 12th game was granted Hawaii last month by a special NCAA ruling. Oh, that was the permission for Hawaii to play the 12th game. I assume... Then hand in hand went the permission for the other teams to play. I would game. guess, but yeah, there were situations where, you, so everybody else was playing eleven. You would get this twelfth game to go there, but if you lost, if you were six and five and you lost mm-hmm. at that time, you were then not eligible for a bowl. Uh, you had to because you couldn't be six and six. We call those the good old days. Uh, 
John Rohrbach says, Hi, Bruce and Stuart. Gonzaga just lost in the NCAA Finals. This is how long it's been since we've done emails. Gonzaga just lost in the NCAA Finals, and they've had an amazing and sustained success for 20 years. Boise State is close in football, but putting them aside, why haven't any mid-majors in college football been able to make a national impact for more than a couple of seasons? I think the main reason is, you know, it's so hard for them to hold on to their coaches. Right? Gonzaga has done this because Mark Few has turned down God knows how many opportunities to go to more traditional programs and stayed at Gonzaga for two decades. Well, you're the bubble basketball guy, but isn't Wichita State in basketball a mid-major? Absolutely. And they pay that guy a fortune. Well, right? you know, it's a special circumstance. You know who you know who lives in Wichita? Uh, I'll give you a little hint. Wichita State's home arena is the Charles Koch Arena. The Koch brothers. Like the Koch brothers? Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. The Koch brothers are paying a large chunk of Greg Marshall's like, what is it, $3 million a year? I remember USA Today put out the chart recently, and he was higher than the coaches at Arizona and, and any number of other power schools. Um, $3.3 million still. That's amazing. Wichita State, who, by the way, just moved up to the American, um, which I think means they're not a mid-major anymore because nobody would say UConn or Cincinnati are, and they're in the American. Anyway... Back to college football. Yeah, I just think it's hard. Anybody like Toledo, you were just that Toledo. You were just that Bowling Green. These, anytime anybody, Tim Beckman had one good year and he gets a job at Illinois. Anytime these guys have any success, they get plucked by the next tier up. By the way, since we're talking Tim Beckman, do you know on his 2009 staff, um, he had three different head coaches on there? He had... Matt Campbell, who's now at Iowa State. He had the aforementioned Jason Candle, who's now the head guy at Toledo. And also Scott Satterfield was also on that staff at Toledo. Oh, I didn't know that. Where is Tim Beckman now? You know, I remember the Tim Beckman in consecutive years at the Combine. Um, to my knowledge, I think he's working for his brother's company. I thought, like, I talked to him for a minute. I thought that's what he said he was doing. I don't think he's going to be a college football coach again. No, probably not. Although he's, you know, he's not that old. He's only 51, I think, or 50. I just think uh, player mistreatment is the, is the one area that you can't recover from. Well, and I think, you know, what makes it doubly tough is when, you know, he had a sub-500 record. I mean, I, he was 4-20 and in three years at Illinois. And his record at Toledo, you know, was was good. It wasn't like outrageously good i'm looking back he was 21 and 16 yeah when you look back at it you go wait a minute they hired him uh i mean there have been more successful toledo coaches than him including matt campbell but anyway i digress to me it is harder to pull off for instance well there's a school i was just at today would you call houston a mid-major yeah i think you would um I don't know. We don't really think of mid-majors in football. We just think power five, non-power five. If you're in the group of five, you are basically, yes, you are a mid-major. Whether you want to be called that or not. They've well, had a nice little run going. Yeah. I mean, look, they have they definitely can get talent there. But I think what it comes down to is, again, and this to me is probably the distinction with, with basketball and football. You know, in basketball, if you have a couple of really big-time players, it changes a program. In football, you need more than a few. 
you need a whole you need a whole bunch to be really to put it over the top. We also haven't just addressed the total elephant in the room, which is basketball is just a much fairer system for those schools. You know, Gonzaga has a way to earn its way into the NCAA tournament every year, no matter what its schedule is, and prove itself from there. Uh, Boise State, I mean, Boise State hasn't had those necessarily those dominant teams yet so far under Brian Harson, but even if they did, it's going to be extremely, extremely difficult for them to actually get into the playoff. You could keep going to those Fiesta Bowls like they've been doing, and that builds respect, no question. Um, but not, I mean, not the equivalent of Gonzaga playing for the national title. Okay, from here we just have a few that I wanted to read. They're not necessarily questions. Drew from Houston, I was listening to your podcast last week about home and away versus neutral site games. While I agree with you, neutral site games between top opponents are better than nothing, there are still some coaches who believe in home away games. Dabo Sweeney, for example, is adamant about scheduling home away games. He has had two series with Auburn, a series with Georgia, and will start a series with Texas A&M in 2018-2019. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Oklahoma is playing these high-profile home-and-homes, Ohio State, USC. uh, So I don't want to make it seem like nobody's doing that anymore. But Alabama has certainly found a system that works for them. In part because they keep getting invited to play in those games. Yeah, you know what? The fans win either way, so I'm happy about it. Oh, yeah, you made it abundantly clear in the last podcast you do not care where the games are played. Well, I just want the games. I don't want to get picky on that. Shout out to Bruce for visiting Toledo and both of you spending some time on the Mac. Stuart, I went to Toledo out of upstate New York. I never understood, and this is only in Ohio, no matter where you were going to school, you were a Buckeye fan first. I'm a dyed-in-the-wall rocket and will never root against them as they are my first priority. And he signed it, Stockton Rocket. Nice. Well, I I am going to give the Rocket a shout-out. I do think that uh, they have a cool campus. It was uh, one of the more pleasant little surprises I had on my college spring tour. So, that was fun. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get podcasts. Tell 10 of your friends. It helps get the word out. We'll see you next time. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.